The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I am also the author of Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And uh, my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, also is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And uh, Chen does only now take um, a waiting list. The only way you can get on to Chen's uh, subscription to Chen's letter, if you're not already a subscriber, is to put your name on a waiting list. And uh, you can do that by going to miningstocks.com. That's mining, M-I-N-I-N-G-S-T-O-C-K-S dot com, or you can call my assistant, Claudio Bossi in New York, 718-457-1426. You can, however, subscribe to my letter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, uh, without being put on a waiting list. I should mention that a lot of uh, Chen's ideas, we do trade ideas. The two of us uh, pass ideas back and forth. Some of Chen's favorites are also some of my favorites and vice versa, but uh, you can uh, get some insights into what Chen is thinking as well as yours truly by subscribing to Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. I should also mention that the best place to go to access this radio show and virtually everything else I do uh, is at Jay Taylor Media, J-A-Y Taylor Media.com. And there we also have a lot of very interesting articles that are appearing every day uh, having to do with the markets, uh, in particular with um, with a free market emphasis and certainly uh, things, um, titles, some of the titles on our, uh, on our webpage today. Uh, Cyprus Catastrophe, has, pe- has People Scared to Death is an article that's there. It's time to sell copper, somebody is suggesting. A secretive family, solid investments uh, from the Daily Reckoning. Are we poised for bull- phase three of the gold bull market? That's a, an article that I've written and is posted uh, on my website. Um, and then another article, for example, just when you thought central banks couldn't get any dumber, they do. Um, and James Sinclair, who's really been on top of this Cyprus issue, I think, as well as anybody, certainly is writing some very interesting if and, I would suggest, provocative things. Sinclair is saying the Cyprus disaster is much bigger than being reported, um, and he's also writing another article, All Hell is Breaking Loose After Cyprus Catastrophe. Well, you can read all those articles by going to J. Taylor Media, that's J-A-Y Taylor Media, and access this show. We've got several uh, important charts like the dollar chart, uh, the dollar index chart, silver, gold, platinum, palladium, copper, uh, oil prices, and so forth are all there at J. Taylor Media. should also mention uh, that you can, um, uh, you can also uh, follow me on Twitter. My handle there is J. Taylor Media. Well, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. And uh, I also want to thank our sponsors for making the show economically viable. Uh, for the first hour of today's show, our sponsors are Brazil Resources, Eurasian Minerals, Dynacor Gold Mines, Golden Arrow Resource Corporation, Miranda Gold, Paramount Gold and Silver Corp., Precipitate Gold, and Renaissance Gold. Before I get uh, talking about today's program, actually, I'm going to um, 
uh, introduce today's main speakers in my next segment. But before we get to that, I do want to talk a little bit about uh, some of our sponsors because I think at this point in time, uh, if we are in fact ready for a major turn in the gold markets, and I I strongly suspect that we are, that we may be very very close to a major turn and a bottoming out in the gold price. And I say that in part because of what's going on in Cyprus, but also for technical reasons that I'll get into in a few minutes. But if that, in fact, is true, then the gold share prices right now, many of the gold mining companies that I follow in my newsletter and the sponsors on this show, uh, you're going to look back at this period of time and say this is one of those woulda, shoulda, coulda moments when I woulda, shoulda, coulda bought Dynacor or Eurasian Minerals or Golden Arrow or Paramount Gold or Precipitate Gold, any number of companies on our list, on my newsletter, in my newsletter, uh, uh, sponsors to this show that um, are selling dirt cheap, really cheap. I mean, in, in terms of, and I'm saying that in terms of not so much the uh, specul- more speculative uh, exploration stocks that are really always um, a roll of the dice in essence, but I'm saying that with respect to companies like Dynacor that is uh, earning a profit, uh, has earned um Expects to earn somewhere I expect it will earn between 20 and 22 cents for the year ending uh, 2012. And we're going to have Jean Martineau, the CEO and the president of that company, coming on to this show in the next few weeks to talk about his performance. Uh, the company did earn 15 cents through the first three quarters of this year. It's selling at a dollar six today. Only 36.2 million shares outstanding. 38 million dollar market cap, more or less. Uh, and growth, lots of growth, and should be upwards to a hundred thousand ounce producer by two thousand and fourteen so but making nice profits and and cash flow, not issuing shares, not diluting shareholders' interest, and what I really find appealing about this, in addition to its growing cash flow, growing gold production, is its to me uh, pampa project uh, where it has got um, quite a bit of uh, actually, I think it's six or seven hundred thousand ounces that is uh, non forty three one hundred one compliant, but historical ounces. Uh, but more importantly, there there is a uh, uh, a scarn a copper copper gold scarn target that's in the middle of la- a lot of very large uh, porphyry targets. And uh, this is a you know the company is drilling this out is doing exploration from cash flow and not having to issue shares. So I really prefer the companies that have the ability to grow internally, and uh, I really like uh, those companies because they don't have to dilute shareholder interest and they can develop and generate their own capital. And uh, and as long as the gold mining industry remains strong as it is now, uh, I think uh, going to get stronger because I'm seeing. The real price of gold starting to rise. I think the real price of gold, as well as the nominal price, is probably bottoming out here, and we should see. Uh, it should see like we. Um, it should. I think we should see uh, an improvement again in the major gold mining company profit picture as we go forward in the next number of uh, of months. Um, Dynacor. I just mentioned Dynacor. Another really, truly one uh, one that I think is really special is Eurasian Resources. We did have uh, President and CEO David Cole on the show last week to talk about things going on. Keep your eyes on what happens out of Turkey. Um, not only do they have a project that's evolving that will soon bring them cash flow every year, but they have another exploration uh, target that is really starting to look like it could be something quite special, quite big, in fact. And they have. Major targets around the world with major mining companies spending big bucks to earn into big projects. So uh, at $2 a share or thereabouts, this looks like a very opportune moment to consider uh, buying some shares of Eurasian Resources, which, by the way, I have done uh, with respect to Dynacor, Eurasian Minerals, uh, and uh, I should also mention Precipitate Gold is a company that we did uh, just recently became a sponsor. It is probably the most... Um, probably the most speculative of the companies that are currently on my list, but they do have some very promising properties in Mexico and just recently, or they actually just picked up one in Mexico recently. It looks very, very prospective. Also uh, one in the Dominican Republic, which was their uh, their major project that is next to GoldQuest's major discovery. And that's the company selling at, I don't know, 23 cents, something like that now. Very minuscule market cap, but these are the kinds of stories that I think have the potential to become extraordinary. Uh, going forward. And I should also mention 
Golden Arrow Resources. I'm going to be talking to the company's new president, Carlos uh, Mazzi. He's the new president and CEO of Golden Arrow Resources, a very extraordinary man um, and uh, with, with uh, an excellent track record. Uh, also worked with uh, President Clinton uh, and the uh, Frank Justra organization in trying to help um, e- uh, create egalitarian uh, income in, in third world countries. But anyway, Carlos has had a very, very, very strong background uh, and successful CEO uh, of a company in Bolivia that's done very well, a silver mining company that's done very, very well. Um, just a real quality guy. So we're going to be talking to Carlos in the last segment of today's show as well. Uh, I should also mention, I think it's very worth mentioning, Paramount Gold and Silver, selling at around $2.19. The company just raised $8 million through the exercises of some warrants. That's a company that I think uh, is uh, is likely, highly likely to be successful. It's got just under $10 million gold equivalent ounces between the two properties, one in Mexico and the other one uh, in uh, Nevada, the sleeper mine in Nevada and uh, a very strong bank you know very strong balance sheet lots of cash uh just world class properties that are being developed uh there as well so we uh, you know i'm i'm feeling very very bullish uh about uh, the gold sector i think there's some good reasons to believe that we are uh, turning around and we do have to go to a commercial break now when we come back I will explain to you why I think uh, the chances are, are very good that we have seen the bottom in the gold market and that um, uh, and, and that uh, we're going to start having a little more fun uh, in investing in gold mining shares. So it doesn't necessarily mean fun and good times for the rest of the world. Unfortunately, uh, gold very often runs counter to that, but that's the reason we own, own gold. We don't own gold to get rich at the expense of the rest of the world. We own gold because we realize gold is real money. It's not fraudulent money like the money that we we're be f- being forced at the point of a gun under law to use. Fiat money is money by mandate, by law, and it is a, a means of confiscating wealth and redistributing it according to the whims and wishes of the power elite. So anyway, we have to go to commercial break. When we come back, I'll have more to say about uh, this uh, bull market in gold, and also um, we'll introduce and talk a little bit about our major, our main guest today. Don't go away. I'll be right back. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at DynacorGold. Windfall profits happen frequently in gold exploration stocks, but the risk of losses are also common. Miranda Gold enhances prospects of shareholder gains by combining the intellectual capital of geologists, mine finders Ken Cunningham and Joe Herbert with other people's hard dollars in search for elephant-sized gold deposits in politically safe places like Nevada and Columbia. That keeps shareholder dilution to a minimum, so when discoveries are made, major gains are possible. For more, go to MirandaGold.com. Precipitate Gold is focused on exploring and developing its gold properties in the Dominican Republic in Mexico. Precipitate's management team has been responsible for numerous takeovers, with valuations exceeding $280 million. With a successful team and a growing portfolio of quality gold assets, including an attractive concession adjacent to GoldQuest's holdings in the Dominican Republic, the company is well-positioned for growth in 2013. For more information, please visit www.precipitategold.com. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. 
Taylor, and I uh, just wanted to uh, give you some of my thoughts on the gold market right now. They're my thoughts, and I think anytime somebody tries to take ownership of thoughts, they're probably kidding themselves and everyone else, too. Uh, all of our thoughts are a composite of, um, of the information that we draw on from other people, and so I'm not uh, at all shy about saying who some of those other people are. One that I have a high admiration for, uh, his work, his technical work, and his uh, knowledge of history is Bob Hoy, an analyst out of Vancouver. And uh, Bob wrote an excellent piece just recently talking about the gold market, comparing the this gold bull market, the secular bull market, and the correction that we've been going through, which has been aggravating, painful, uh, to say the least, for a lot of the companies and gold share uh, or gold bullion investors. Uh, he compared this with the stock market bull, uh, the bull market in the Dow Jones going back um, into the 1990s, around 1994, 1995. Uh, and he talked about how that was in a 12-year bull market at that point, the Dow Jones was. And it went into, um, it, it had a, a false cross death, a death cross, which is really the 50-day moving average crossing below the 200-day moving average. It's supposed to be a lethal event. Uh, and uh, it was a false sign. Uh, then uh, also the sentiment readings of uh, people were just extremely bearish on the equity markets at that point in time at, at a five-year low. Well, the same thing has happened with gold. We've seen that death cross for gold, and we saw people coming on CNBC and other places talking about how uh, we had to really watch out because gold is going to spiral downwards uh, forever and ever. And, of course, uh, it is held, very, very importantly, gold is held above that um, 1540 level and now seems to be rallying on the news out of sight, especially, although I think it started uh, showing some signs of, of basing before that. Uh, but the point is that uh, uh, gold also has been has gone through this false death uh, cross, and it's also had this five-year low in sentiment reading. So you couldn't get too much more bearish on gold, uh, and, uh, and then along comes Cyprus. And this Cypriotic, this, this problem in Cyprus, I think, is very, very significant. Probably much more than what we are being told it is by the mainstream press. It is really underlying, or uh, let's say, destroying confidence uh, in uh, in the banking system in Europe and around the world. Why, uh, if especially if if this goes through, and I'm not sure that it is. I think they're in fact voting this afternoon, or maybe delaying a vote. Uh, but if this goes through to confiscate, essentially just confiscate 10% of your bank account. I mean. Why wouldn't people just try to draw it all out? And when that's exactly what's been happening uh, in uh, in Cyprus. So, and then they've they've closed the banks and don't allow banks to transfer money out. But as Jim Sinclair has pointed out, not only is this underlying confidence of of uh, you know people that put their money in banks, but it's also has uh, geopolitical ramifications because apparently Cyprus it was the Switzerland for the KGB for the Russian mafia and the dirty money that came out of the Russian mafia. So Jim Sinclair is making the point that if you're you really don't do this sort of thing to those fellows over there, uh, Mr. Putin and his company uh, and his country and his KGB friends, if you're going to try to steal money from them, uh, well, those are those are fighting words. And he's talking about those politicians in Cyprus probably being dead men walking, essentially. So it it is very. I think this could be an extremely huge event, maybe a game changer. This whole Cyprus thing be the straw that breaks the camel's back, as they say. Uh, but what it tells me and suggests to me is that they've really undermined the confidence, the con game that the politicians have been uh, have been involved with. Well, I do want to mention bullishness on the gold uh, share markets in Canada. It looks like uh, we may be bottoming out at 240 on the gold index. I want to also say that I just recently recommended Allied Nevada Gold Corp., uh, one of my favorites in my newsletter, and uh, Dynacor. These are the kinds of companies, cash flow positive, that can grow organically, can grow from cash flow. Now, I do have to mention, as we're almost out of time here for this segment, uh, today I'm going to be talking to John Williams. You talk about dishonesty from politicians. I think John Williams uh, is going to be talking about the uh, the economic stats that come out of uh, the United States government are absolutely phony uh, to a great extent, at least, and they are misleading us into believing that things are really better than they actually are. John Williams will be with me at about 4 o'clock. And then I'm really delighted to have with me Dr. Peter Treadway, who's going to talk about uh, his excellent book, 
uh, investing in the age of sovereign defaults. And, and this is just a, a real delight. I, I met up with Peter some time ago. We'll talk about this book, How Can You Prepare Yourself for the uh, Problems That Are Ahead and, and How Did We Get in This Mess? Peter will talk about all of that. And then also um, at the uh, at about 4.30, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Carlos fernandez Masi, the new president and CEO of Golden Arrow Resource Corp., will be with me to talk about that company's uh, success and really some exciting things happening right there now uh, with that company's Chinchillas project in Argentina. Well, we do have to go to break now. But don't go away. We'll be right back with Dr. Peter Treadway. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. Attention mining investors. Brazil Resources Incorporated trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000 ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil led by recognized mining executive Admir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources com or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. Golden Arrow Resources on the TSX Exchange has recently made a new silver discovery and is presently drilling a 6,500-meter program on that discovery. A maiden resource calculation is expected to be released in April of this year. The project is located in Jujuy Province in northern Argentina, just 30 kilometers from the Perquitas Mine operated by Silver Standard. Golden Arrow has an experienced team with decades of experience in Argentina. Golden Arrow offers shareholders exceptional leverage with an exciting new silver discovery. Paramount Gold is a U.S.-based exploration company with multi-million ounce advanced stage gold and silver projects in the mining-friendly jurisdictions of Nevada and northern Mexico. Backed by a strategic investor and a strong balance sheet, an experienced management team has completed preliminary economic assessments on both projects, showing robust economics and immense potential for increasing ounces and mine life. For more information, go to ParamountGold.com or follow on Twitter, PZG News. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me, for the first time, Dr. Peter Treadway. Dr. Treadway is an independent consultant and money manager and has served as an adjunct professor in Asia, and he is currently a principal of Historical Analytics. Uh, that's a consulting investment management firm dedicated to global portfolio management. Its investment approach is based on Dr. Treadway's Wall Street experience. A monthly letter entitled The Dismal Optimist is produced for clients, and Dr. Treadway also serves part-time as a chief economist for CT Risks. It's a Hong Kong company. In this, uh, in this capacity in Asia, he has uh, given occasional one-day workshops on sovereign risk. He uh, his distinguished career includes serving as chief economist at Fannie Mae in 1978 to 1981, uh, an institutional equity analyst at managing director uh, and managing director, I should say, at Smith Barney, 1985 to 1998, and he was ranked as all-star analyst 11 times by Institutional Investor Magazine. Dr. Treadway holds a Ph.D. in economics from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, an MBA from NYU, and a BA in English from Fordham University in New York. Welcome, Dr. Treadway, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Oh, it's good to be here. 
Good to have you with me. I just uh, picked up a copy of Investing in the Age of Sovereign Defaults, your your latest book. It is an excellent read. I really enjoyed it. Um, I think, uh, although I must say that the the topic uh, doesn't leave a lot of room for optimism, you do provide a few rays of sunshine here and there through the book, but it really is, uh, I think, a condemnation of the direction of economic policy, or say, uh, in recent years, but we'll, we'll let you... Um, decide whether that's an accurate characterization or not. But um, chapter one, you talk in the book about democracy's fatal attraction of populism. And, um, you know, you talk about the dynamics there in in that chapter behind the horrific debt problem that we now face here in the United States and around the world. I want to ask you, you know, we really want to get into that, the pathology of democracy. I think, um, I think if I read you properly, that's, uh, how you see it. Um, that, that's really led us into this mess. But before, before that, before we get into that topic, I would like to, uh, hit on the topics more, uh, in chapter two, which you address, uh, essentially as the enormity of the global debt problem. Um, you, you talk about this, I think, first of all, before you talk about the, the size of debt to GDP or whatever matrix, uh, you want to use, uh, do you see our problem as being a, um, a liquidity problem or a solvency problem? Well, Warren, it's a solvency problem. The um, and when I use the term default, it uh, has a really uh, a broad definition. Number one could be a legal default. Now that's not going to happen in the United States mm-hmm. because we can print our own money, and it won't happen in any country where they actually control the central bank. Mm-hmm. Although Europe's a funny situation. Now, it can also mean where there's a bailout, <clears throat> you know, IMF comes in. The third would be a restructuring, and that gets a little slippery as when it's a voluntary versus involuntary. And then another type of default, which I think we're going to see here, is an entitlement default, mm-hmm. where they basically don't give you what they originally promised in terms of, now that's good for investors, or maybe the investor is the same person as receiving the entitlement, but um, from an investor point of view, the entitlement defaults are probably a plus. Um, then there's an inflation default, which I think we have to worry about in the United States and in um, the other countries. Where you have the central bank, the central bank can, can um, print the money. And the final default would be um, where they come in and steal your pension fund, and they've done this in several countries um, and I think we're, we've come out of the 2008 crisis for all the countries with a um, really um, significant debt ratios. And this was, in a way, due to it's almost a 100-year process of the fatal attraction of, of populism. And mm-hmm. now we're looking at, down the road, <clears throat> a really um, significant increase in entitlements. Mm-hmm. This is being added on to... To, um, to the debt situation in all the major countries. And it's funny how the major countries, well, what we're calling the major countries, mm-hmm. France, England, whatever, the U.S., they're the ones with the problem. And the less developed countries, as they used to call them, are, are in, overall in better shape. Yeah. Although they're all vulnerable. I was just in Southeast Asia and Malaysia is having an election and it's, it's populism. You can see it. It's Santa Claus time. Mm-hmm. Everyone is getting all kinds of freebies. Vote for me, and you get this. Mm-hmm. And now, right now, Malaysia is in good shape, but um, the democracy as it moved to universal suffrage. And that's another thing Americans aren't really fully aware of. Um, and, and I'm not really arguing for taking votes away from people, but. When the country was founded, only 14% of the people could vote. It was white propertied people. And over, let's say, a period of, of, um, well, from 1789 to really really recently, uh, the franchise has been totally expanded. And recently, of course, included uh, adding what I call near adults, uh, 18-year-olds to voting. Mm -hmm. And people vote for what they can't get in the market. Yeah. And that's, that's the fundamental thing. In the U.S., you have a racial uh, angle on this as well, as well as a public sector union right. situation. 
Right. Well, in Chapter 2, uh, you talk about the dismal demographics as one of the topics in oh, Chapter right. 2, and you, you just sort of hit on that, I think. The, uh, and I'd like you to, to perhaps talk about that a little bit more, but, but topic, uh, the topics in Chapter you know, really, uh, in Chapter 2, it has to do with the the sort of the extents the extent of this debt problem you touched on a little bit how does it look in terms of historical are we are we at a higher level of debt to gdp than we've been in our history no i think we're right around the same level we were after world war 2 uh-huh. but after world war 2 we went into a growth mode yeah. and this time um that doesn't look like that's going to happen we have the heavy debt load and we have the entitlements in front of us we didn't have the entitlements and you mentioned the demographic situation. You know, we had um, <clears throat> we have a significant decline in the birth rate, mm-hmm. and that is working its way into a significant decline in uh, the worker to in, uh, in beneficiary ratio mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. on the entitlements. So that's in front of us. Yeah, and we're starting <clears throat> with the major countries already in significant debt. So that's a different situation from the end of World War II. And the British, for example, at the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815 were heavily in debt. But they grew. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> the growth possibilities here don't look so good, partly because of the demographics and, and the giant entitlement uh, bomb that's out there. Right. Well, uh, speaking of that giant entitlement bomb, we've had uh, Dr. Lawrence Kotlikoff on the show, and he was talking about some incredibly high numbers, I think, and I don't know what discount rate he used, but he looked at a present value of future claims on the government from Medicare and Social Security and so forth. Do you, do you have a sense of how, how severe that is? Let's say that if the government made what good on it. Because I, I've well, seen this, I haven't actually done those numbers. Yeah. But, I mean, uh, a number of people have, and they come out, with astronomical numbers. Yeah, I mean, I think his, as I as I recall, it was something like two hundred trillion or something like that. And and you know, obviously, there's no way that's going to ever be paid. Uh, so defaults. Well, he's been sounding, Kolokov has been sounding the bell on on the demographic side and, and the entitlement side for years. Yes. Um, and the problem with this is this is not. You know, you yell fire, you can look at the building, it's actually burning. It's yeah. watching the grass grow. You know, but the grass is now starting to finally get to be noticeable. And, yes. You know, you get out to 2050 and we're, we're finished. Yeah. And there's some major changes. But we're starting right now with a really high level of debt. The, the U.S. is, well, it depends which uh, the debt-to-GDP ratio you use, but the U.S. is around 80% on a net basis mm-hmm. using the, um, the IMF definition. Right. Well, if you look at total debt, including private sector as well as public sector, it's even substantially higher than that, I believe. And uh, charts that I've seen show, oh, in it, show it go back to something greater than in 1932 at a height, and that was really that debt-to-GDP was, was so great because of the, uh, the GDP number fell off the... You know, the world economy collapsed, collapsed in the Great Depression. Right. It hasn't done that yet. Well, yet let's let's uh, let's hope it doesn't, Peter. But um, but I, but I mean, again, the default. I, I think you're uh, the different kinds of defaults that you talked about. Is the inflation threat the biggest one you see for for? I think people? for the U.S., the inflation threat. Even though we're not seeing it now, and I know we can get into arguments about how to measure the CPI, but we're not. At least the official numbers don't show inflation now, and. Um, but I think that uh, I was trained as a monetarist. You can't print money forever and and, mm-hmm. uh, and not see the result in inflation. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we have an international monetary system that went off gold. Gold worked perfectly. Well, perfectly maybe is an extreme word, but yes. it worked really well from 1880 to 1914. That was the golden age of the gold standard. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were no capital restrictions. We really had one world currency. That was gold. Mm-hmm. And then the war came, and that was Humpty Dumpty never could get put back together. And finally, Richard Nixon killed the Bretton Woods Standard, which was a gold standard light. I call it that. And um, and we've been on a fiat money standard ever since, which really has been fueling these bubbles uh, and... Um, has been a uh, really an inflation uh, engine. Um, 
Now, the one little irony here is if we ever had a war with China, we'd have to borrow the money from China. <laughs> yeah, that, that's an interesting observation, Peter, and I've, I've thought of that myself recently. We are borrowing money from China. We have been borrowing money from China. At the same time, we seem to be increasingly competing with China for the world's resources at this point in time. Um, and, and how is, I mean, I, I don't know where to go with this because there's so much to talk to you about, but we're... Where is the United States now in terms of its funding, of its huge deficit and this growing deficit? How much are we relying on the Chinese? How much are the Chinese buying of our treasuries yet? Or have they stopped? Are they staying where they're at? Yeah, that number slowed down a little bit. I I don't have the exact numbers in Mm -hmm. front of me. But um, actually, the way I see it is the Chinese weren't doing us any favors. The Chinese were manipulating their currency so that they could export more. The system allowed that. Mm-hmm. They basically held down the value of the renminbi, mm-hmm. and, buy, and they, what they did was they would go out and 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 buy dollars, mm-hmm. and those dollars had to be recycled into the United States, and they uh, they wind up loaning us this money. But it was sort you can sort of view it as vendor financing. Yes, that wasn't you know the China, I spent a lot of time in Hong Kong, and you know you talk to Chinese people, and they think they've somehow they've done us a big favor. They've done they're like a, you know, they they basically lower the value of their of the prices of their own products through mm-hmm. currency. It's mm-hmm. really currency. Um, I shouldn't use the term currency manipulation because <laughs> a political, uh, but it was currency uh, guidance. Uh-huh. Put, it, put it that way. <laughs> you're being you're being uh, po- politically correct, uh, but it, it uh, that I am. I'm not it, politically correct on a lot of things. Uh, no, I can I, see in reading your book, and this, uh, by the way, folks, is what you really want to uh, investing in the age of sovereign defaults. Uh, Peter Treadway is not always politically correct, and uh, probably one of the reasons he's appealing for this show why why I have him here. But um, I have to I ask you. Don't work on Wall Street anymore, so I can say. Yeah, what so you're you're free to say what you want to say. Uh, that's the beauty of independence, as long as uh, as long as you can uh, feed your family and and pay your rent, I suppose. But I, I suppose you're past that point, uh, thankfully. But. You, you mentioned gold. I was going to talk, ask you some questions about it later on, but you mentioned gold, and you went through the history of how Nixon finally uh, severed all ties to gold. And we've had on this show, Louis Lehrman has been with us, and uh, also uh, John Butler, who's written a, a book called The Golden Revolution. Both Louis Lehrman and John Butler believe that we are inevitably heading back to some sort of a gold-backed system uh, interna- at least for international trade. At least that's the way uh, Butler looks at it. I think Louis Lehrman is more hopeful, and I don't know if it's just that his, he's getting old and it's senil- senility, or if, um, or, or if there really is some possibility that we'll go back on some sort of a honest, what I view as an honest monetary system, a system that doesn't allow endless amounts of new uh, new currency to be created. But what are your thoughts? Is it is it at least uh, is it remotely possible that will the world will go back onto some sort of a gold-backed system? Uh, J- Jim Sinclair, another uh, analyst, a person at least, he's uh, quite vocal, believes that in order for the banks to um, you know become have solvent ba- balance sheets again, they're going to have to uh, start to go back to to a gold back uh, to a gold standard of some kind, and gold would have to be priced at much higher levels. But do you have any thoughts on on this topic? Well, what you just said is correct. If we ever went back to a gold standard, a real one, gold would have to be priced at much higher levels because there isn't enough gold at current prices. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, I think it's highly unlikely that governments will allow it because mm-hmm. governments have a monopoly in, in, in creating money, and they're not going to give that up very easily. Mm-hmm. They, will, um, it, they will go out of their way to levy really heavy punitive measures, I think, on gold if it, if it were to continue to rise uh, to some and, and really begin to replace um, uh, fiat currencies. You know, if the minute they sense that, I think they'll come get us with 75% capital gains rates or something like that on gold. Yeah. When I started writing this book, I was much more of a gold enthusiast, but I, I sort of thought it through and I, I became more of an admirer of the way gold operated from 1880 to 1914, and even before 1880. Um, I, it was phenomenal. 
and it would be phenomenal again if but the governments the the world changed you have mm-hmm. universal suffrage the the populace holds the government responsible the last time we the, any american government allowed um the uh the economy to sort of go on its own was the depression of 1921 and uh, Warren Harding just refused to allow uh, he just allowed the thing to work it go through mm-hmm. and it we had a sharp drop and then a recovery and mm-hmm. um, some really good years in the 20s last time Hoover was an activist mm-hmm. you know FDR accused him of being uh, a, a do-nothing president. It's totally wrong. Right. Hoover did everything wrong, but he was an activist. Yeah. And Roosevelt ex, uh, ex, uh, continued and in, sort of increased his uh, what Hoover was doing. And you know, the, under the gold standard, governments don't control monetary and fiscal policy or monetary policy. Yeah. It, the the gold metal and the flows of gold. That's what determines it. Governments are not going to give that up willingly. I agree. So, uh, that's why I became a little less enthused about gold. Yeah. And also the fact that we're not seeing, right now we seem to be in a global deflation in many ways because of a lot of excess capacity mm-hmm. and uh, around the world globalization. And so, you know, the public doesn't have a sense that inflation is out of control, although... Mm-hmm. I know that's a, that's a controversial issue, but that's kind of where we stand right now. Where, so yeah, today there's a rally in gold because of the Cyprus situation. But um, the uh, I, I think gold is um, one. I think the government will limit your upside, and two, until we see the inflation come back um, in, in a way that's convincing, um, gold is probably just in a trading range, or maybe even will go down further. Um, so, um, you know, if you told me that the gold standard was coming back tomorrow, a real one, I would be enthused. But I, mm-hmm. I'm not, um, I guess I'm a congenital pessimist. Yeah. I don't believe it. it's going to happen. Well, the, you're, you write the letter, The Dismal Optimist, which is an excellent letter, by the way. But, Thank you. Uh, but, you know, Peter, you mentioned um, deflation, and we've had A. Gary Schilling on this show as well. And, of course, he's a deflationist. I wouldn't say an extreme deflationist. We've had Robert Prechter on here, uh, who is a, dis- uh, I would Term, term him an extreme deflationist, but you mentioned uh, excess capacity, I think, or, or excess supply globally. Uh, what about debt? Doesn't debt play into this deflationary sure. force as well? Thing. That's the yeah. other thing. We have the debt overhangs, and, and we have uh, global excess supply. Mm-hmm. Both. I, I should have mentioned that. But those are the two major drugs. Schilling has a couple of other things, but I mean, those are the two major, uh, I think, driving forces. Um, so, um, for the moment, you know, gold is kind of a trade. If you're good at that, you know, some weeks it goes up, some weeks it goes down. That's mm-hmm. my, mm-hmm. That's my view. Well, well, I might mention that John Butler, who's been on this show, as, as, uh, and has written the book, um, uh, the Golden uh, Revolution believes that uh, exactly what you said, that government's not going to willingly give it up. That is, the Western world, uh, the governments of the Western world aren't going to willingly give up printing money, uh, and they don't want a gold standard for that purpose. But he thinks that there will be uh, likely to be some geopolitical force in play. I think he means largely from the creditor countries, the countries that are, uh, that are uh, producing more than they're consuming. Uh, and that he sees some sort of a, a force in that way. You know, Jim Sinclair has been talking about uh, the Cyprus situation. You just mentioned the Cyprus situation, where apparently a lot of the wealth that's in Cyprus is uh, is KGB money, or at least that's what he says. It's money that came out of Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union from the powerful, the rich and powerful people there in that society. And he believes that maybe if the, the IMF decides it's going to start taking 10% of the savings away from people in the bank accounts, it might not sit too well with certain geopolitical interests and well, you you spend a lot of time with china with the chinese uh, society and you you're involved and you 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 know you're between new york and hong kong all the time what are your thoughts about the chinese and their their thirst for gold and do you see do you see a geopolitical confrontation on this monetary issue um let me hit the last question um I mean, well, the first question, do the Chinese want to hold gold? They do. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a demand for gold in China. That's true because of their own history. Um, 
they, by the way, China has the first history of fiat currencies and the first history of, it's in the book, yep. of fiat currencies that basically went worth, became worthless. You know, as a geopolitical thing, um, it could turn out that way. <clears throat> it's, it, you know, there are all these governments are in this together. Mm-hmm. I, I really, I, I don't see this so much as wars like that. I mean, there's a lot of stuff about currency wars and, mm-hmm. Uh, the current system, I think, could be reformed. Um, they could establish certain rules, and one is that you can't manipulate your currency. Mm-hmm. Or I use that word "manipulate" again. You can't. <laughs> you can't. Um, China can. You know, you have to let the market determine what your currency's value is, and it, pretty much the euro trades that way against the, the dollar. Now, the Japanese yen is being manipulated. I can say that. You can say the yen is being manipulated. That's yes. Okay. So, I think that's wrong, frankly. I think the market should determine. If you let the market determine the value of, of these are the major com- countries, okay? Mm-hmm. You know, the U.S., Japan, the Euro, maybe the U.K., um, you let the market determine the value. You don't get this buildup of reserves like the Chinese have and mm-hmm. the Japanese have. Mm-hmm. You basically, and you don't get people loaning. You know, you don't have this vendor financing. Right. I mean, if your currency is overvalued, in your opinion, that's tough luck. Mm-hmm. That should be. That would be my. I think rather than some, <clears throat> you know, ideal golden era, which I'm certainly in favor of. But mm-hmm. uh, I think reforming. I think the current system can be reformed. But. but- but how do you, how do you get there, Peter? Without um, I mean, you gotta. You, how do countries agree? Do you have to go to a one currency system, basically? No, no, you just basically you just set a rule that they all have to live up to that they cannot be buying huge amounts of currency. Yeah. Or well, it gets a little trickier because they can manipulate it other ways. Like, yeah. Like there has to be some kind of an agreement that you can't do currency manipulation and let the market determine it. Yeah. And that, I think, would... Uh, then you wouldn't have this build-up. That's what happened with the Chinese. It was vendor financing. And sure. Earlier on, the Japanese the same way. Sure. So, um, and uh, before that, the Germans, actually. So, uh, you know, the system, you know, the manipulation of... The currencies have no value, really. Uh, they're, they're fiat currencies. They trade against one another. So I think the market has to be allowed to set the prices, and you know that would that is what I would call a realistic reform of the system. But you know, it's but I mean, you know, we're not allowed to the, you're not allowed to say manipulate currencies when in fact that's what's happening uh, because there's this whole geopolitical dance that goes on between countries, between nations, and trying to um, to avoid. I guess the U.S. has to be careful to the extent well, we that we have we're, a law. You know, the Treasury every year has to certify the Chinese don't manipulate. <laughs> so that's why I want to say the Chinese, because when you trip a law like that, you, you're then you are starting a lot of problems. But I, I mean, I don't the, think that's the right way to handle it. That's why I don't want to say the Chinese are manipulating. Right. But with the Japanese, the law there is no law, so I can say that they're manipulating. I see. But but the fact that you have to have a law that says they're not manipulating suggests that in fact they must be manipulating, or, well, or there's some. I mean, sus- the U.S. has not pushed hard enough, but you know that the average person, it's not a political issue that that really filters down to the average person, the average voter. So it doesn't. Yeah. And they don't understand it. It's too arcane. Well. And, you know, Peter, this gets back to a big part of your your book. Uh, what I got from your book, the, the the seeds of destruction that are sort of sown sown in democracy, I believe. And and I think you make the point in the book. I believe I read it in your book that uh, that democracy, the word democracy, doesn't appear in the Constitution. Yeah, it doesn't. That's a really a, that was a surprise to me. I didn't know that. Yeah, but but we started World War One was supposed to be fought to make the world safe for democracy. I think was the slogan, right? That was the slogan, and if the founding fathers were around, they said, no, we want to make the world safe from democracy. Right. Because they were looking at the French Revolution and stuff like that. They didn't want that. They right. thought, and Madison, which I quoted in the book, um, he, um, 
said very clearly, if you let everybody vote, the, the people don't have property will vote to take the property of those who, who, <clears throat> who have it. And, if, of course, he realized if you went the other way and no one could vote, then you, people's rights would be, would be uh, threatened. Right. So they came up with sort of a this idea of a republic, and it's kind of a compromise. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, you could ask me what I think, sh- if I were setting up an ideal republic, mm-hmm. um, I probably would put in some requirements uh, in order to be able to vote. Right. Very, you know, they certainly wouldn't be racial as they were in the past, and mm-hmm. certainly they wouldn't be based on sex as mm-hmm. they were in the past. Sure. I would take the 18-year-olds off the voting rolls, so I'll say make that. Them, make them uh, 21 or something like that. But literacy yeah, tests, Peter? Literacy tests, perhaps? Yeah, that's the direction I would go in. Yeah, I mean, we had those, and, and many of the states had literacy but tests. they were it's, misused. They were designed to, to kick For racial purposes. Off, and, and yeah. So, so the history is, is awful here. Yeah. Well, no one's going to do this. So yeah. That's another. It's like the gold standard. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Well, you know, I I sort of believe that we are going to have some sort of an international gold standard sometime again, but it isn't necessarily going to be friendly to the people of the United States necessarily. You can't go halfway on a gold standard. uh It's got to be a full scale where you give up control of of your monetary policy to an anonymous metal that flows around the world and and equilibrates, you know, different countries current account balances yes that's the way it works in the yes. original model yes and the david hume uh, price species flow model mm-hmm. and if you start cheating on that you're wasting your time yeah well so, it, this would be a topic for another discussion sometime and possibly get lewis lehrman uh or john butler on with you to discuss this this might be a, a really interesting I, it's interesting to me. It's interesting to my listeners. Many of us are investors in gold and gold mining companies primarily. Gold mining companies are primarily the sponsors to this show, uh, and so gold is, you know, is is an issue. And uh, it obviously, you know, I, I suppose as somebody said if the uh, policymakers had their choice, they would put it all on a all the gold on, uh, on the face of the earth on a rocket and, uh, ship and, and send it up to the moon or someplace, you know, get it out of here. But, well, um, the electorates are demand, demand that the uh, countries take control of their monetary and fiscal policies. Right, because they want a freebie. Really, that's been the 20th century as, and, and now as well. You know, whereas before, well, let's say before, and I, well, the Fed was founded in uh, 1914 or 1913, right, right, right at the edge of, the beginning of the year, and then that, and the war came right away. Right, and the Fed printed money, which right. was never intended in right. the in the. But the Fed was set up; uh, it was in place. If there had been no Fed there during have the been war, a... things would have been different. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it, that's exactly right. Uh, I believe that's exactly right. The, the Fed uh, helps the governments uh, wage war for sure at uh, printing money. Anyway, uh, well, I, I, I want to. Men- got a discussion with Louis uh, Lerman or um, who was the other John? John Butler. Butler. He's a British. I wind uh, up agreeing with ninety percent of what they said. But yeah. Just I would just say, but I don't think it's ever going to happen. Yeah. Well, well, we've had we've had Ron Paul and Lewis Lehrman on this show together to talk about. They were the two gentlemen in Reagan's uh, uh, gold commission that said we should go back to, uh, or as Lewis Lehrman likes to say on CNBC recently, I saw him say we need to go forward to a gold standard. He's very enthusiastic about it. But I, I share your your pessimism, Peter. I'm afraid um, that it's not going to happen, uh, at least not for a while, until all hell breaks loose. And that's uh, I, I want to just tell our listeners though again. If you're, uh, if you're hoping for all hell to break loose, I hope you I hope you make it through the hurricane. We don't we don't want that either. I believe me, we don't want. I mean, one of the things I like to tell our listeners is I'm not I'm not a gold bug because I want to get rich when everybody else suffers. I would like to have gold as a on an honest monetary s- system to keep us from going through the the, the cycles of, and the sort of ups and downs that we've had. But I want to just tell our listeners, investing in the age of sovereign defaults uh, is is a must read and I would also direct them then to chapter 4 which really addresses the international monetary system and the desperate need for repair so I, I hear what you're saying Peter you think there's a good chance that we might be able to do something 
that would limit the ability or that would that would try to keep nations keep each other in check from manipulating their currencies that is creating excessive amounts of 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 money and and manipulating the exchange rate to try to get an advantage do you see that do you see us now being in a, a sort of a 1930s beggar thy neighbor situation the currency wars that people are talking about do you think it's well, comparable a little bit with the japanese uh-huh. um, yes Mm-hmm. Um, well, but we're not in a 30s situation, but the, the Japanese situation is unfortunate. And you see the uh, Asian currencies like the Sing dollar uh, have uh, weakened as, as, you know, they've almost had, I think, had to push their currencies down as the Japanese currency went down. I don't approve of what Japan is doing. Yeah. Japan and China have this model of uh, managing the economy, it's protectionist. It's um, it's it, well with the Japanese it had been, and now it is again lowering the value of the currency. There's so many structural reforms that Japan needs and has never been willing to undertake. Um, and of course, Japan's birth rate is uh, you know going to is, is one of the lowest in the yeah. world. Mm-hmm. It's it's all of the Confucian societies. Including uh, uh, China, including Singapore, Korea—they all have um, really low birth rates. And China, it's not the one-child policy. There was an article in the journal about this today, but it's not the one-child policy. Really, it's um, it's the same thing that's driving low birth rates in Singapore and Korea, whatever that is in Japan. Mm-hmm. So the the um, the Asian situation is um, is. Uh, Sort of, I guess, uh, excessive. You know, there's a problem there. Peter, we uh, are almost out of time here, uh, regret- regrettably, because there's uh, so much more I wanted to ask you about. But you you hit on deflation, but I gather in reading your book that you're really worried more about inflation longer term. Do you think we could we be in for a serious de- uh, deflationary threat here in the in the near term, and then off to letting all hell break loose with the printing presses, or what? What's your what's your scenario? Well, the in Europe you 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 had some of the peripheral states their government debt yields went way up before they got bailed out by the European Central Bank, um, but the inflation rates didn't. I don't know. We could get into a weird situation here where the U.S. debt yields go up and inflation doesn't. It seems that's even possible. We're, we're going into an unknown kind of situation. Mm-hmm. We've never had central banks really print like this. And they're not actually printing, you know, they print high-powered money. It's not the M1 or M1, M2 money that they, they don't control that directly. They control the monetary base. Mm-hmm. And so far they've, they've gotten away with the printing. Yeah. Now the money is showing up as excess reserves mm-hmm. around the world. Um, but, um, well, I was brought up as a monetarist. Right. I cannot believe that this can go on forever. And um, it's definitely, you know, like um, in Hong Kong or in the U.S., you buy a house, interest rates are really low. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're practically, well, they're not nothing on the mortgage end, but they're really low. What happens if those rates start to go up again? Oh. It's distorting the investment process. Oh, for sure. I mean, David David Stockman, who we we played a, a speech that he gave. And David David was saying that uh, Mr. Bernanke is in the process of destroying uh, capitalism from the inside out by destroying the capital markets, holding interest rates where they are. Peter, there's so much more to talk about. Um, I, I might mention to our listeners that it's not all doom and gloom. There is some rays of hope and sunshine in Chapter 1. Uh, Peter uh, Treadway talks about his optimism. There's some kernels of optimism there for sure. I think it's a very, very interesting Technology book. Technology is accelerating at an accelerating rate. That's a Ray and, Kurzweil line, but I, I, that's going on at the same time. You know, there was a headline in one of the business journals this week about the U.S. is doing well in spite of its government. Right, right. Well, certainly in fracking, you know, oil, oil and gas. Uh, these are, and, you know, and Obama's done everything he could to prevent it from... Uh, <laughs> yeah, but it's happening anyway. It's happening anyway. <laughs> right. And, and the computer technology, and the U.S. is such a... You know, so many companies, they're here. Europe is much more tied up in rules and regulations. Yeah, so we still have a lot of things going for us. We have a, I think we do. Bad, in a way. I mean, the U.S., 
When I first started writing the book, I thought the U.S. was going to really run into a wall within a year or two. But mm -hmm. I get more, in a sense, more optimistic that we have more rope to which to hang, ourselves. to hang ourselves yeah. than I thought we did. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you very much, Peter. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I'd like to get okay. you back on sometime to talk about the gold standard, uh, your monetarist economics, uh, your views there for sure. Uh, would love to hear what you think Milton Friedman would say now if he was alive and well with, with us. Uh, I don't want to sound cynical, but he managed to check out just at the right time. <laughs> we should all be so lucky, I suppose, is to find uh, to meet our maker at the right time. But uh, in any event, I want to thank you very much, Peter, for being with us today. It's really a pleasure talking to you. My and uh, I, I just can't recommend highly enough investing in the age of sovereign defaults. It's an excellent read, very entertaining, very easy read but I think full of a lot of reality and some optimism, too. So thank you very much, Peter, for being with us. Well, folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back after the commercial break with John Williams. John Williams is going to tell you that uh, what you're seeing from the government isn't necessarily what he sees in terms of inflation and unemployment and the likes. So I think very important information from John Williams as well. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure, a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. 